Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors all over the world. Today, I think we have a very sarcastic and charismatic individual who has a book out there called- I thought, you have, I, thought I was on here. Are you talking about someone else? <laughs> See? See, he's already starting, guys. You're going <laughs> to like this one. Hire With Your Head is the fourth edition, using performance-based hiring to build outstanding, diverse teams. The man's name is Lou Adler, and uh, he's here to share a little bit about what's inside the book. Lou, first off, what was the genesis behind the book? What happened to make you want to write this book? Well, uh, but that's a good question. The genesis probably 60 years ago. I guess it, um, I'm kind of thinking, so this, now you've asked me a real hard question. The genesis is I've been a recruiter for 20 years when I wrote the book. And I saw a lot of mistakes being made. So I realized there was a good way to hire people that met the company's needs, the hiring manager's needs, and quite frankly, more important, uh, candidates' needs. And rarely all three of those needs were met. Even the candidate mm-hmm. didn't even know his or her own needs. But I do remember <laughs> yeah. one one situation in particular. It was a some, and I did not start as a recruiter, but I met, was a fellow that I had worked with uh, in my career, we worked real hard together. Really phenomenal guy, phenomenal person. And I then became a recruiter, and he was a cost accounting manager. So it doesn't matter what the role was in a manufacturing. Became a recruiter, and I introduced him to a company, and they spent an hour and a half with him and came back with a totally superficial answer. That wasn't the per- I actually knew the person intimately, had worked with him for two years. So what they concluded was totally false. And I realized that happens a lot, but that was such a personal situation. I said, you know, people don't know how to, the interview is a useless piece of thing to assess a candidate. You're assessing the person's interviewing skills, not their ability to do the work. So that was actually the genesis, having seen it, but having personally experienced that I knew uh, that was just a phony deal. So it was how to correct that whole situation. Uh, And it happens all the time. happens today, every day in the world. So uh, that was the goal. Wow. Let's so just took- figure out how to really assess a candidate properly and how a candidate could really look at a job and make the right decision. Hey, this is the best job of uh, other ones I'm considering. You bring up oh, a good point there that even the uh, individual looking for the job doesn't know his or her, her own needs. What do you mean by that? Because uh, I've interviewed a few people who have recruiting companies and uh, they express the same sentiment. So um, tell me what that uh, means to you. Well, I'll, I'll state it in a different way. And this happened, I'll tell you a story, because I tend to tell stories. Happened where I had a real a search project for a plant manager for a high-tech company. Uh, and the candidate called me and said, I'm not going to take that offer, Lou. I got a better offer. Uh, it's closer to home with more money and a better title. After we discussed it for a half hour or 10 or 15 minutes, they said, John, you're making a strategic career decision using tactical information. Everything you said is optimizing what you get on the start date, not what you're going to be doing over the course of the next one to two years. And if you take this job two years from now, you'll be exactly where you are because you're going to an old line industry with more money, but you won't be any better two years from now. On the other hand, you'll be making slight less money, a better, it'll be a bit of longer drive, but you will be in a state-of-the-art electronics field and your career will be on a, a rocket ship rather than plateau. He thought about it, agreed, took my offer, uh, and called me about a year later and said, Lou, I've just been named VP operations over six manufacturing facilities. Best decision in the world. 
uh, focusing on the long-term career opportunity, not the short-term pay package. And it's balancing those short-term needs with the long-term career is the key. But most candidates want to make a short-term decision because it's painful. Oh, I don't like this company. I don't like the man. I'm not making enough money. The drive sucks. It was fire in the freeway. I can't, you know, it's always about leaving short-term pain. And it's hard at that moment to say, no, I got to put that aside. I got to think, is this really the best long-term career needs for me? So that's uh, how candidates always screwed up. Hiring managers do the same thing. You want to hire somebody, you got to fill this job. You got to work harder if you don't have somebody there. So everybody's thinking short-term. It is hard under those conditions to think long-term. And it is hard. I don't want to minimize it. I Everybody goes through it. It's hard to just say, okay, Am I going to be better off 90 days from now? You might be better off 10 days from now, but 90 days from now, when people get into it and get the payback, they say, oh, God, this job sucks. Uh, he was the wrong person. I mean, I hear it every single day uh, because people make short-term decisions rather than long-term decisions. So did you start your own recruiting company? Uh, I was, that's a hard story to answer. Yes and no. Uh I was on a good corporate. I was running a manufacturing company with 300 people uh, when I was 32 years old. Uh, and I was promised, I was growing fast, great track, loved the job, but I hated the group president. He, he came in once once a month or once every three weeks. And I was a miserable SOB, hated the job, hated him, quit four times. And I said, I don't, I don't need this crap. Uh, but I did like the work. So, but when he wasn't gone, I loved it. Uh, when I hate when he was there, I hated it. Uh, so I just quit, gave four years, uh, six months notice, started with two recruiters who kind of convinced me this is the thing to do. My wife said, hey, let's try it. And turned out to be pretty successful. Now, my wife's support, I was that was critical. Without her, I couldn't have done it. So, And we've been married, I think, what is it? Now, 53 years, I guess. It's next month, so I better be careful about that. <laughs> so what year did you start this then? Uh, what You ventured out on 19, your own. 1978. But I got it. But I worked ten years. I got a degree, worked manufacturing, engineering degree, MBA, worked real company for ten years prior to that. So, in the recruiting companies that I've worked with, in regards with to their book, uh, I noticed that they uh, are very specific on the type of companies they work with. It's like they specialize, whether it's on the you know farming equipment or farming industry or you know certain corporate ladders. Um, did you specialize in any one type of corporation or industry that uh, you were able to kind of match up with uh, potential um, job candidates? Well, initially I did. And that's really part of the genesis of the book, too. My background had been manufacturing, budgeting, planning, uh, so I could handle any ma any manufacturing job and anything related to manufacturing. But I got an opportunity to speak to different business groups and get searches in different industries. And I realized when I had subject matter expertise, knowing you're looking for plant manager and electronic, I knew what that job was. Looking for a controller in a manufacturing company, I knew what that job was. But I started getting assignments in other industries and other functions, scientists and medical devices. And I didn't know that. And literally the, where I was, I just started getting introduced to companies in industries, and I lost total confidence in my ability to find candidates and deal with the hiring manager. Hmm. So I developed, hey, I'm getting these assignments. I got to understand the work. So we developed techniques to understand the job 
in great detail. So then when I talked to the hiring manager or the candidate, I could truly understand the job, just like I do with that guy telling him he was making a short-term decision. That would be hard to do if we're a scientist. I didn't know the role. So that really became the genesis of performance-based hiring. And it took maybe six months to a year to figure out, hey, how could I learn about the work for any job, even if I was not a subject matter expert? expert? And it worked. And that's part of what the training became and a lot of what the book is. How a recruiter, if you don't know the job and the company and the manager, you're just selling smoke and mirrors. And a lot of recruiters do that. And that's why they're just a transactional process. But when you really know the job, the manager, you're trusted by the manager, the hiring manager, trusted by the hiring team, and trusted by the candidate to give that person true good career advice. Hmm. So that's what I'd say. I, while I did start out initially, uh, I realized I could expand it. And that's a lot of what the book says, how anybody could get in the game. But you do need to have product knowledge, which is just like any sales rep. You have to have product knowledge or you're just on smoke and mirrors and bullshit. Uh, one of the rec recruiting, uh, individuals that we worked with, he talks about how there are two things that he focuses on. Number one culture, uh, that is something that has to shine through in every social media post and, uh, every piece of content that's out there. And the other part of it is the standard operating procedures that give a roadmap once they're hired. Maybe at, uh, acquiring that great talent is one thing, but keeping them involved and intrigued and growing is a whole different game. So that's where most companies fail, he said, not giving them a personal development strategy that will help them elevate their skill sets and their income as they proceed down that path. So where do people fail when it comes to recruiting top talent and keeping them happy? Well, I think you hit it on the head. I solve that problem that the other person mentioned, and I think it's real, is when I take a search assignment, in fact, I'm doing one this morning for a company in Europe. Uh, they were looking for a controller, and they had a list that has to have a CPA, has to have 10 years of this, all this stuff. I just said to the CFO, I said, what does this person need to do to be successful? Walk me through the steps of what success looks like. It's always a series of performance objectives. Audit the existing accounting process, figure out how do we improve the reporting to all non-financial managers, uh, build and develop a team of eight CPAs and upgrade their skills. It's stuff that people need to do. So I define, and I actually asked the hiring manager, over the course of the year, what would this person do to be considered extremely successful? So now during the interview, I'm digging into the candidate's background with respect to that. Uh, the candidate by the time the candidate gets hired, he or she knows exactly what the performance expectations for the job are, where they're strong, where they need to grow and develop, why the hiring manager needs to do it. So during the onboarding process, those things are already established. Then they got to deliver on the promise. We call that win-win hiring. Win-win meaning you success is measured on the anniversary date, the first year anniversary date, not the start date. Mm -hmm. It forces a person to think long term. Oh, this is what I'm. Uh, so at the first year anniversary date, the candidate says, I'm so glad I took this job. Hiring manager says, I'm so glad I hired the person. So, exactly what this other person said, I clarify it before the person's even interviewed. If if, if that person gets to the uh, on uh, start date and they're surprised about the job, it was a screwed up. You made a mistake right away. It's problematic. If it'll be successful, I, I minimize or eliminate that problem by starting at the requisition to say, hey, Tell me what this job is all about. I'll find people can do that work, but they'll likely have a different mix of skills and experiences than what you have written on your job description. I don't get to have 10 or 15 years experience, a CPA or that or this or that. They got to be able to do the work. 
And generally speaking, if it's accounting, yeah, they need a CPA. But don't start with that. Start with the work. Get accountant who wants to do that work and see that as motivating work. So yes, uh, what that person said at how I solved the problem might be a little bit different though. Uh, we live in a renter's market for sure. And uh, that means pretty much everything is temporary, especially in uh, in, in, in America where we kind of just get and then let it go. Uh, I would assume that maybe that translates into people's jobs too. Are people jumping around from different positions, different companies more so now than ever? Hit us with some stats is what I want to say, uh, Lou. Um, do you have any fa uh, facts and figures of how many people either get a job and then they jump ship uh, within two to three years or certain trends that are either very enlightening or very scary? Well, let me give you the... So first off, you're 100% correct. The problem is, is this short-term pain. So people take a lot of one-year gigs uh, because for the best pay. So that forces them to do the same work over and over again. And this is exactly what would have happened to that guy I mentioned yeah. 30 years ago. He, you know, he would have been only working in old line industries. So you've got these software developers or anybody that take one-year gigs for the most money, uh, but they're not over overall satisfied by that. And yet, and I is that the fault of the company or the fault of the candidate? It's a fault of the society. So I totally agree with that. Now, for real specific, uh, you look at the Gallup. Gallup organization does a job satisfaction survey, and it could be worldwide. I've just looked at the U.S. results uh, for the last 30 years. Job satisfaction, people who are fully engaged with their job, fully engaged is about 33%. And it goes up plus or minus 2% every year for the last 30 years, sometimes better, but 33% are fully unengaged and 30% couldn't care less. And that hasn't changed at all uh, over 30 years. And it's because wow. short-term mentality. Uh, and it, and again, it goes back to what this other recruiter told you. Uh, it's If you don't define the work as a series of performance objectives, even if you tell everybody on the day they start, this is what the work is, which is important. I didn't know that was the job. So now they're disappointed. So uh, and most people don't really talk about the work during the uh, the process. This morning with the CFO, I said, OK, tell me about the work. OK, we'll find people who are both competent and motivated to do that work in your environment. In general, that person would need 15 or 20 people. In this case, they're only going to have eight people at the corporate financial staff. So all of a sudden you got an issue. Culture is important. But if the work but let's be real frank. Uh, I love this job I had 30, 40, I don't remember, 45 years ago now. Hard for me to believe that. I got to take a deep breath. Uh, <laughs> but I love the job. I love the culture. I hated the manager. So when you really think about company culture, no, the manager is 70, 60 to 70% of the culture. When he wasn't there, I loved it. When he was there, I hated it. Wow. Same right. exact job. But so the real proxy for culture is the hiring manager's leadership style. Uh, the other one is the pace and intensity of the organization. If I got a fast-growing company with, and you had to make decisions on the fly, you don't have a lot of resources, a lot of new tools, well, you got to find a candidate who's going to survive and enjoy that. On the other hand, if you got a slower operation, more detailed tools, more bureaucratic decision-making, that's a different culture. So there are ways to define culture based on proxies that uh, assess, hey, is my culture from company A the similar to the culture of company B that I'm going to? So those are very critical issues. Yeah. And I'm 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 gonna be selfish in this question uh, a little bit. 
because uh, I have a company and I'm hiring people constantly, whether it's writers, editors, or graphic designers, or you know, people who are helping out with just streamlining the process with our agency. And uh, I've realized that um, there are certain individuals who have strengths and weaknesses that it, it, on surface level, they could be the perfect fit. But if you give them tests like disc tests or any type of personality test, you might be able to figure out, wow, maybe they are not the key person for this role, but they do belong over here. And I'm starting to notice that there is a trend with these disc tests that lend uh, some type of credibility to um, uh, where I could see them in the uh, the role five years from now, and they will not only make more money but be happier. And it's almost like they they fight it at first, but then they once they're in that role, they're like, "Oh, I do belong here." So, what would you recommend? Are you a big believer in these disc tests, personality tests, uh, and 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 anything that could kind of give a, a a metric of where they belong in that organization? Okay, so let me give you the. I've been writing about disk and predictive index and Myers Briggs and all this. Myers Briggs, yes. So yeah. I've been writing about it for years. So I took my first disk test test back before you were born, uh, nineteen eighty or so. All right, I'm um, eighty four. So good, good. good so catch, it was yeah. four years before you were born. Took it, and the guy said, "Boy, you're an aggressive, outgoing SOB, aren't you, Adler? But you're a terrible analyst." So, and the truth was. Those tests represent preferences, not competencies. Preferences, and that's not true. I am really a good engineer. I am an engineer. I'm a detailed analyst. And I, uh, every time I can go into a state, I enjoy that. And I'm good at that. I can be loud and outgoing and forceful and in your face. And I probably enjoy that. But I'm not nearly as good at that as I am as an analyst. And I can get into detailed, complicated my my first job was working on uh, when to blow up a nuclear uh, missile when it was off course. That was my first job at 22. Wow. Uh, I was pretty good at it. But I also realized, hey, you know, that's going to get me one direction. But sometimes I still like to do the detailed analysis. So there is a fundamental flaw in those tests. They represent preferences, not competencies. Number two, they don't represent uh, flexibility. Sometimes you need to be a detailed analyst. Sometimes you need to influence. Sometimes you need to uh, engage with people more diplomatically. The best people can adopt those styles depending on the circumstances. Uh, but And so, and I have dealt with these tests. My recommendation is to everybody is do not give the test until you've interviewed the candidate and determine if he or she is competent and motivated to do the work. Then give the test to see if their personality correlates with the performance uh, accomplishments of the candidate as part sort of, of like the, another checkbox, like am, yeah, I, am and, I and knowing the right that decision? you're going to do it. Yeah. I kind of ask, Hey, Mike, you know, some of those times you got to be, you know, you're a pretty outgoing guy. Sometimes you're going to have to deal with some engineers and some accounting people to have you ever walked me through a situation like that. So I actually, I test their personality to see what they've done in situations that would not be normal for what the person's obvious personality is. Uh, and that kind of validates it. And I can say, oh, these persons kind of grow and develop over time. So they, they're flexible across that. On the other hand, predictive index now has an IQ test they've added six years ago. Uh, it's actually part of, if you're familiar with what's called the Wonderlick test. Mm, it's, a, it's a 50-question test. I think it's 50 questions where they get at verbal and numerical skills. 
that test has been given for 50 years. I've actually I've met Wonderlick's son, Charlie. He and I are good friends. I met him 20 years ago. Um, but that's a good test. IQ is a good predictor of potential. Uh, and there's numbers in there. You can look up Wonderlick. And I don't know that DISC has a IQ or cognitive skills test, but that is a good predictor. The personality is kind of flexible and it's it, it can set you in the wrong direction. So on the other hand, I still give it to 100, and we always give both 100% to our final, two or three final candidates. The testing companies don't like that idea because they would rather sell 100 tests to everybody rather than just three to the finalists. So yep. from their business model, it doesn't work. But from Yeah, my, they didn't like you for that. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I I go along with it. I've taken, I've probably taken 30 of these tests and they all, they get they're good at preferences, but the IQ is that actually are you smart or stupid? Um, and the worst thing is to get in a, a very assertive, stupid person because they can put you out of business real quickly. <laughs> in your summary of the book, it talks about a high tech, high touch approach. What is that about? Well, it's actually probably more important now because with AI, and I actually retired a year ago. Uh I started using it probably about a year ago. I heard about uh, ChatGPT. I said, this is kind of interesting. Game so changer. in January, I started really using it. So 10 months now. And I said, this is a game changer. A friend of mine called says, Lou, you know, I'd like to scale up performance-based hiring using AI. Uh, and if I don't know if you've kept track of it, but recruiters are a lot of recruiters are out of business in the last year. Number one, hiring has slowed down. AI has kind of taken over some of that work. Uh, so the, I would say 20 to 30% of recruiters are, down. This company I talked with this morning, the woman actually had 17, the head of HR had 17 recruiters. She's down to four. Uh, the number of search assignments didn't decline by 75%. They declined by 50% with the offset being using AI. So what I AI, see- AI, you mean they're not hiring as much simply, right? Well, AI is, no, let me kind of restate that. The number of search hiring assignments has declined by 50%. But the number of recruiters have divided by 75%. Oh. So now the recruiters have to pick up that extra burden using artificial intelligence. Got so, it. Got it. Uh, so we're doing the project I'm doing, which was talking to the CFO this morning, was to how can we leverage AI to do that? So now I go back to your question on high touch. The recruiters still need to offer the high touch component of talking with people real time, understanding their needs, offering these this career uh, guidance to the candidates, like we talked about, thinking long-term, not short-term, and also acting as a business advisor to the hiring manager to whom to select. Don't just select the person who looks like this, select the best person. That's the high-touch role that recruiters will play at least in the next couple of years. Quite frankly, I think AI could probably affect that too, but I don't want to go there quite yet. Um, but the high-tech role is, I think, a lot of this work uh, that we're seeing can be done with uh, AI. That's what I say, this balance of high tech and high touch. I think you still have to get on the phone and talk to people. Changing jobs is still a critical decision that uh, needs some uh, guidance and insight. And a good recruiter can provide that. Yeah, I think the next five years are going to just be insane for a lot of corporations. AI, like you uh, have mentioned, uh, Chat GPT. I didn't believe in it whenever I first heard about it, and then I started play playing with it, and it just kind of shocked me every time that I started to prompt it with better and better questions. So it's a game changer for sure. Um, what? So the the, the big takeaway that I've um, grasped uh, since Chat GPT 
has entered our live is that lives is that mediocrity will not be tolerated in the future. I believe the best will always find a place in an organization. They will need to adapt and maybe progress with their skill set and adding value to the marketplace, but they will always have a place at some organization. The mediocre and the lower level people, that's who should be scared right now whenever it comes to this. So what do you th say? Are, are you on the same page with me? Do you believe that AI will wipe out a lot of people, but the good ones, the great ones don't have to worry? I think they have to worry, but I think your general principle is 100% right. I have a another mindset that's a little bit different, and maybe it's a little too Panglossian, um, is everybody can be in the top 25%. The top 25% means you're motivated, you like the work, you like the people, you're willing to go the extra mile. Uh, and then when I say to be in the top 25%, though, is a definition, not a number. Uh people can find jobs that meet their fulfilling needs. Um, a lot of that depends on the hiring manager, right? My first job, what I mentioned to you, was this nuclear, working on a nuclear missile. Uh, they thought I was an electric, electrical engineer as a mechanical engineer. And the boss was great. He said, now we hired you. It didn't have an interview. They just looked at my resume and gave me an offer. I mean, literally, if I was upstate New York and I got a job in Southern California. Uh, but the guy was a good manager. He said, now let's let's tap into what you're good at. So he found me work that was still, it was a, appropriate. Uh, there are situations, however, uh, the top, everybody better learn AI to be better at what they do. And if you're just going to go along for the ride and just look for short-term gigs, you're 100% right. You will be outsourced. So I think your your point about uh, taking jobs for short-term one-year gigs, that, that group of people, a lot of that, if you can do it in one year and learn it, AI can replace it. If you exactly. can think about taking a job for two to three years where you're really on a, a growth curve, you'll always be in demand for something. It will be different than what you started with, but it probably will be, uh, it'll be a lot different a year or two later. And I'm 77. I'm still learning. I realize, holy crap, this is a game changer. And I was with a bunch of VCs last week. Um, some of the I was one of the presenters, but we had they had a bunch of professors from Stanford. And I'm saying, I have so much stuff I don't know. I mean, which was <laughs> exciting. Uh, and I think it's that attitude. People can't believe that I'm still excited about it. This is, this is exciting stuff. And AI is just game changer. I mean, I, every time I look at something, what I I read something about Spinoza. Baruch Spinoza, the uh, philosopher from uh, 17th century. Then I read something that James Garfield is a disciple of Christ. And I read Thomas Paine's Age of Reason. I said, can you put all these three things together in chat GPT? I said, this is kind of confusing. All of them different. And then he went through and it said, here's what this person is. And then he said, and here's the differences and here's the similarities. So here was a complex thing that could probably take a month and a philosophy course, figured out in 15, 20 minutes. And it was phenomenal. I mean, to me, this is pretty exciting. It's what you don't know that's going to keep you growing and keep you engaged. And I think everyone's got to take that attitude. Hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to be part of it. Yeah. And it, it really will affect everything, including graphic design. Uh, we have blogs being written by certain people every day. And there are AI bots that are going to scrape those blogs and then draw pictures of mm -hmm. what that blog is about. And Ooh, if these are cool. pictures, send me that. Right? I gotta try that this afternoon. It's insane. So think about it. We used to go to Adobe Stock and get pictures, or we used to have a graphic designer put something in place, and we would pay people, right? Well, that's all gone now, and uh, that's just one step. I also have uh, a client that has a, a burger joint, 
You think they're hiring people? No, they're building a burger joint based off of robots and robots alone. And maybe there's one person, but think about that, that how many people can get served with burgers and whatever they want with robots doing it. So that's why I see people who are pushing for the minimum wage increase. And I'm thinking to myself, and the moment you do that, you realize you're forcing the hand of many people in power to say, maybe it's time for us to develop some type of AI or program to just wipe you out completely. So if you are not developing a skill set or adding more value and reading more books on how you can become better at what you do, so you are irreplaceable, then you are going to be left behind. And it's a scary, scary time for those people, I think, that think that, oh, if I get a college degree, I'm good. No, oh, 58% of people have not read a book outside of high school, which means if you're one of those people, chances of you having new skill sets for the marketplace, very slim to none. So AI will take you over pretty damn fast. And uh, you're probably seeing it way more than I am. No, I think you got it. You hit the nail on the head. So, uh, uh, all right. Now that we're talking about how to hire these people, I think it all does begin with the core values and the mission of the company. So in your book, do you outline some things to do before they even walk through that door or submit that resume? And uh, case in point with my company, I made it very clear on who I am, what I stand for and where I'm going in life, You know, having that clear vision. And I put it everywhere. And it was amazing the type of people that started to apply based off of that clarity and the branding and the culture that was shining through um, in every facet of the company. So I think it starts with the marketing, but um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you have a different viewpoint, Lou. No, I think you're 100% right. I think you're getting the message across. So I'll go back to, again, that first job I had, 1968. Uh, Vietnam was big. Could have got drafted. Worked in military. Uh, I worked literally on a Minuteman uh, missile, uh, 22, 15 other very brilliant double E's in the group. They hated the job. I'm 22. I thought it was pretty cool blown up people, but didn't think of it a year from now. But nonetheless, the technology was pretty cool. They hated it because six months earlier, they were on the lunar excursion program, the thing that went put the rocket around the moon. Uh, they worked from 1960, many of them from 1963 to 1968, working on the, putting a man on the moon. Same exact work. They said, they loved that job, loved it. They worked seven days a week, never wanted to take a day off. They worked as long as they had to. It was inspiring work, exactly the same work, working on a nuclear missile project because they all got laid off. They all got put on a different project, same uh, contractor, um, hated the job. So the mission does matter. The culture does matter. Yep. I think, and that's the brand. If you can kind of get that point across, things change. Exactly the same work. And yet the benefit of doing that or the bigger picture is I'm on a project that's critical. So we always tell companies, why? what's the intrinsic motivator? What's that inner hero of that kind that's going to want to get that person inspired? And I remember one as an advertising agency out of New York. He showed me one ad. One ad said, uh, for a cost accountant, detail-oriented, CPA, five years experience. He rewrote the ad to say, your attention to detail drives our corporate profitability. Same exact job. Wow. But it was the impact of that job. It said, oh, they're speaking about me. So again, what you're doing, Mike, if you're saying, 
these are the people I want to hire. You're speaking about me. I, I want to be part of that mission. And I think that's a critical thing that's often missing. It's not just the work. It's the mission of the work that's just as important. And every job has something. And if you can capture that, you can improve the quality of the people you see and hire. And you talked about job satisfaction and uh, 33% they're not satisfied or 33% are satisfied. Uh, and what's cool about that, probably if you dive deeper, it probably is not all about money for the most part, right? Have you noticed that when you're working with people, money is only one facet, but there are many other ones. And it probably has to do with purpose and growth and potential and their ability to lead others. Have you noticed there's a certain trend that Money's really the smallest part of that job satisfaction aspect. Well, it's not the smallest, but uh, as a recruiter, I've been involved in over a thousand different search projects. And I would say in 80% of those, maybe 90, the money wasn't the best. So when anybody says to me, what's the money? I say, let's put the money in a parking lot. Think about the best job you ever had. The best job you ever had. Was it because of the money or something you did every single day? And when they come back and I say, no, it was the people, the manager, the growth. I said, so, yeah, I know we have to give you competitive compensation, but let's focus on these other things. We call them the non-monetary factors. And in order to achieve a win-win hiring outcome, I tell them, we got to get you at least a 30% increase, but it's non-monetary. Some stretch, some growth, some satisfaction. uh, And it's all these other things that you have to look at. Yes, if we're not. uh, So the idea is everybody comes in, I want to make the most money. I've got to get that as a recruiter down to fifth or sixth on the list, maybe third or fourth on the list. It is not unimportant, but it's not the most important. But coming in, I got to make more money is always the issue. I've got to convince them to think long term. Yes, money is somewhat important, but what you make a year from now or two years from now is more important. And if I can put you on a better growth path, what you're making today is insignificant to where you'll be two years from now. It's hard for people to think that way, but you're 100% right about it. Yeah, it's short sightedness. And I always think of the movie Color of Money. Have you ever watched that movie at all? Of course. Oh, so uh, the main character or he's one of the main characters uh, is talking to, uh, I believe it's Tom Cruise at the time. And he says, show, you know me, what the I money. Do? show me the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he says to him, he goes, uh, you know what I do? And he's like, well, you're in, you're, you know, sell liquor. He goes, no, I'm I'm in uh, I'm in the business of excellence. And he says, if you are in the business of excellence, if you are excellent, if you are the best at what you do, the money can be arranged. Don't even worry about the money when you're the greatest at it. And that always stuck with me because, you know, if you're into book publishing or Facebook ads or but it doesn't matter if you're great at it, money will find you simply because of the market is always looking for the greatest solution. And if you stand above the rest and if you have the most uh, accolades, if you have the greatest uh, line of breadcrumbs behind you that you've been there, you've done that money will find you. And so I always think of that, that, um, you know, people should focus on what they're great at, what they can really provide to the marketplace, to the business, uh, rather than what's the short sightedness of just give me the money, because that is going to lead to desperation and a scarcity mindset. And Lou, you seem like you're well read. Are you a big Jim Rohn fan at all? Oh, of course. Jim Rohn. I met Jim Rohn. So yeah. Be... Oh, you met him. I think he's the $2, greatest speaker of $2, all time. $2. Uh... And now it's $20. No, I know Jim Rohn real well. I think I had, uh, I did a couple of audio tapes with Nightingale Conant and Jim Rohn was one of the, uh, on some of those audio tapes. So we had a chance to get audio from people. So after I impress you with this quote, you got to tell me some Jim Rohn stories here, but uh, Jim Rohn has that great quote. Don't bring the market your need, bring the market your seed. And that is all that matters. What can you offer? And if you can lead with that service, that service mindset, 
for service to the many leads to greatness. That is how you stay up. My, my Jim Rohn thing is don't major in minor things. <laughs> it's so good. He's I believe he's the greatest speaker. The greatest speaker, huh? in, in my opinion. He's the he's the GOAT. Uh, he's great. In, I mean, I I used to drive. I live in Southern California. Where do you live, Mike, by the way, Mike? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay, so I'm in Southern California. I used to drive from Orange County through L.A. and had all these Nightingale Conan audio tapes. So he was certainly good. I liked uh, Stephen Covey. And as they're good. I mean, I probably listened. I think I got a call from the Night and Go Kona people said, you're the only person who bought every single one of our tapes. <laughs> probably you're a tough guy. Made. You're a number uh, one customer. Yeah. Well, then, then they asked me to put a program together. So um, still got an $80 royalty from that, I think, last month. So it's <laughs> awesome. years worth of sales. So. Uh, we always ask this um, with, with our guests, uh, outside of your own book, of course, uh, is there a book that really changed your life, put you on a new path, maybe created some type of defining moment? Well, I would actually say the book that if I had to recommend it to anybody is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Outstanding People. Uh, begin with the end in mind. Uh, first things first. Uh, host of things. Seek first to understand before you understood. Phenomenal book in terms of understanding human nature and the power of people. Uh, and I think if I had to go look at it, when I interview candidates, I'm actually looking for those uh, core attributes of outstanding people. And it just to me, it's a phenomenal book. I don't know that I learned anything new about it. I knew that I was flawed. So that, I guess that's it. So uh, and I said, that's, hey, that's the way it's going to be. But nonetheless, it's uh, helped me understand the world. And uh, you, you've seen uh, enough companies do great things and probably some poor things. And maybe that is the case with employees also. But one thing that a company can do that will set them apart from an average company. And I'm going to follow that up with what is one thing that somebody out there is listening right now that says, if I listen to Lou, I could do this to make myself more valuable to that next dream job opportunity. What could they do also? So now you've asked a lot. So I'm going to go back to 1972 uh, to give you a story. I had just been named manager of capital budgeting, 26 years old, uh, for an automotive operation in. Detroit area. I had been relocated from Southern California as a financial analyst to take on this job as manager of capital budgeting for, and had about a billion dollars in capital expenditures in today's dollars. Uh, I had a, and I'm working real hard, uh, detailed report that I knew I had to meet the CFO and the group president the next morning. Uh, and the first time I had actually presented anything formal to them. Uh, so it was important. I get a call from my boss, who's a, a guy brought me out to Southern Cal from Southern California. He was the number two financial guy at this group. He said, Lou, uh, I need you here at the University of Michigan. We're interviewing MBA students. And I've got about 25 on the list. I can't. There's about eight or nine of them that you have to interview. And I'd never interviewed a candidate for a job at all. Uh, I said, Chuck, I can't do it. I got this report. We got this meeting tomorrow with the president and the CFO. He said, get your ass over here. There's <laughs> nothing more important to hiring great people. Nothing. We'll, we'll get the work done somehow. That's what he said. He said it wasn't optional. I had to drive from uh, outside of Detroit to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan was. He showed me how to interview eight candidates. Uh, eight, eight, eight candidates. I got there about one o'clock, probably didn't leave till four. Uh, we invited some to dinner in Ann Arbor. So we had six or seven dinner in Ann Arbor. We got back to the office about 10 that night, stayed to three o'clock in the morning, put this report together, handwritten, 
nine o'clock next morning. So got home to shower and shave, um, met the group president and the CFO. And the first thing the president said, why is this report handwritten? Chuck, my boss, said we were interviewing MBA students, and I think we were going to hire six of them. And he said, I told Lou there's nothing more important than hiring these people. The president looked at us and said, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Great job. That's the thing I learned on that night. There's nothing more important than hiring great people. Nothing. Everything else can wait. And there's very few hiring managers that believe that. Wow. Very few that believe it. It is a game changer. Uh, so when I interview hiring managers, I say, hey, tell me about the people you hired. I mean, I know if it's a good hiring manager, I don't inter- I don't assess their individual contributor skills. I assess their ability to manage and build great teams. Draw me a org chart. Who's on the team? How many A-level people do you have? And if they don't have a bunch, they're not very good. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but I learned that in my first day. A lot of things I learned uh, early on in my career that just stuck with me, but that one is, and now we're sitting there talking to MBA students at University of Michigan. 20 of them came to our thing. We were working at a company making truck axles and brakes and off-highway equipment. Boring, boring industry. Going ahead, head-to-head with Procter & Gamble, General Mills, IBM, Ford at the time. And my boss looked at him and he said, time is your most valuable asset. What you do in the next two to three years will affect the rest of your life. You can go to all these big companies and that first year will be great but you'll be doing the second, the exact same thing the second and third year because you're a big bureaucracy. At our company, we're going to put you on a fast track that will never stop. Chuck, who I, who made that story, was 28 years old, youngest CFO of a public corporation ever. I was 26 and only got my MBA nine months earlier and got my first promotion. So we proved it and we hired, every, we made an offer to eight people, seven of them took the job. Every one of those people became a major CFO or executive at a major corporation. Hiring top talent is the most important thing you can do. Everything else can wait. Wow. That's a great story. How about from the standpoint of an individual looking for that next opportunity? How can they make themselves stand apart from the competition looking for that job also? Well, I think I have a training call. If you go to Hire With Your Head, you'd see the book. Uh, But I tell candidates, if you feel you're being interviewed improperly, stop the interview very quickly and say, Could you please tell me about some of the performance objectives of this job and how you're going to measure success? Because I'd like to give you some examples of work that I've done that are most comparable. Just asking the question will put you in the top half of the top half. If you answer it correctly, you get an offer. Asking the question. Yeah, you have a lot of guts to ask the question. You got to be pretty confident. Tell me, Mike, about big what kind of work this person's going to do and what's important. How what's a big problem? Now, if you answer it poorly, you won't get the job. But asking it says you got to have balls to ask the question, but answering it correctly with giving an example of work you've done, you'll get the offer. I mean, it's so game changing to be a candidate. Now, you got to still answer the question right, but you'll know. And the hiring manager says, I hadn't thought about that. What about this, this, and that? Oh, yeah, pretty cool. I can do that. Let me tell you what I've done. I mean, I would think conviction in them in themselves is probably the number way, number one way to stand apart. So a lot of people probably go in there with their tail between their legs and uh if you wanted the job, you got to feel like you belong there. I would assume that's probably, you know, a part of you know, I everyone. Remember I, I, even for this financial analyst job that I had, that first job after I got my MBA, one of the guys at the corporate headquarters, it was a 37th largest, he said, well, tell me how you uh, could sell a light bulb. And I said, geez, I have no clue how to sell a light bulb, but I could tell you how to build a factory that could sell half a million of them. And I'll walk you through that. And he said, that's pretty good. And I told my <laughs> 
<laughs> well, your personality probably shines through immediately. And uh, there's a great quote. Um, are you a big Dr. Joe Dispenza fan at all? Who? No. Dr. Doctor, you know him? I don't say that name again. Dr. Joe Dispenza? Don't know him? Oh, so. my God. That Lou, we got to get you reading the right books here. Uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza has this great quote, and it's, your personality creates your personal reality. And the more you let your personality be known to the world, it's amazing. The people who enter it and the people who um, remove themselves from it. So when you show your personality, people will see if you're the right fit or not. And I'm assuming you have no problem with that. So that's why I uh, I yeah, like but talking I, you with see you. That now, the, the issue I'd have with that is I've met a lot of people who are somewhat introverted, who are remarkable people, remarkable people. Uh, and unfortunately, they don't get the chance to shine the way they could. And I think in my case, I remember even as a grad from, I mean, I'm an engineer. I got, I had 15 job offers. Uh, I wasn't really that good. I was just a good bullshitter. Um, so I think in some way, I mean, I was good in some stuff, so I don't want to totally, but I think there's other people who I know were phenomenal. They just didn't have that achieve. They just weren't as results earning. And they could, they were phenomenal if you put them in the right situation. And I think, so I think in some level that's true. In some level, people who are really, really good don't get a chance to shine. And that's why I say, if you're a quiet person and just ask that question, hey, what does it take to be successful in this job? I'd like to give you some examples. That gets everybody an opportunity to shine. So that's the only thing I would say, the caveat I would give with that story. And you probably see people, uh, depending on the age of the candidate, they change over time. I hired a woman who was 18 just for as a, a photographer right out of the high school. She worked with us. She wanted a little extra work. And then uh, she became part of the team. And over the next four years, she just became a completely different person. So it's not like you're the same person now that you will be for the rest of your life. But the evolution and uh, the new things that you are exposed to will shape your mind. So I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that, but you are not the same person for the rest of your life. And if you develop new skill sets, you'll become a different person. New opportunities come your way, leading you to a whole new life. So. Yeah, not, let me kind of, and I've got to end it because I got time this, but let me just say this. I think you're 100% right. The thing that I always suggest to people is volunteer for stuff that you're not that good at. Because if you screwed up, nobody cares. They knew you weren't. <laughs> uh, but when you achieve it, you realize, oh, that was pretty easy. And you'll, your confidence in taking that role will increase. So if you volunteer for stuff you're supposed to volunteer for, hey, you're supposed to be good, but volunteer where you're really stretched. Oh, you can't do that, Mike. Oh, let me try it. So they know you're going to fail, but then they'll go out of your way because you volunteered to make sure you're successful. And then when you are successful, you say, wow, I'm pretty good at this. So I think that's a secret that a lot of people can use is, hey, try to take jobs that are over your head, fail a little bit, and you'll learn, hey, most jobs aren't that tough. It's just got to take, uh, you just got to go into it and you'll be excited and you'll gain that confidence and convince others, say, I can handle that. So why don't you ask one last question, Mike, because I do have to run, but this yeah. has been great. So. Oh, that, that's it. That, that's I know we, we uh, we're a little bit over in time, so I really appreciate it. Um, but it makes me think of uh, a great quote from a Richard Branson. I read in one of his books that uh, say yes and then figure it out later. That's it. And I can do that. <laughs> you know, so uh, great nugget at the end there. The book is called Hire With Your Head, Using Performance Based Hiring to Build Outstanding Outstanding Diverse Teams. And I believe it's uh, part of your website. Is it hirewithyourhead.com? That you'll be able to find us there, that's for sure. Beautiful. Lou Adler, it's been an honor. You're a great person. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. It's been a lot of fun, too. 
Yeah, man. And uh, get get in touch with uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza. He'll, he'll uh, show you a couple of things. You would love him, it, I think. So. <laughs> <But> <laughs> All right, guys. Sure you're gonna send me, I'm sure you're going to send me 20 more emails in the next hour. So Ex- uh, you know me well. And that's that AI behind the behind the machine here. You know? So right. guys, remember, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life right on.